Father God, I thank you for gathering us this morning in the name, the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has brought life and incorruptibility, incorruptibility to light through the gospel, through the good news of grace. So, Father, I thank you so much for him and that he's, he's the one really who's gathered us. It's because of him. It's due to his great work on Calvary's cross and then his glorious resurrection that we might be saved by grace. And uh, it's his work in drawing us, opening our hearts, uh, blessing us in so many ways we can't even number them. So, Father, I thank you for each one who's gathered here this morning with us and for the great blessing that it will be to open your word this morning again. Uh, We thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for uh, continuing to work to reveal yourself to us through your grace and making that a reality to us increasingly as we continue to open your word and to study your word and to uh, take you at your word, believing what's been written and preserved for us. Father, thank you that uh, each one here uh, knows you and uh, each has a testimony. And we know them. We know the testimonies of each one. And we're so thankful, Father, for that. Father, I, I pray for our country that's in, as our sister has said, in grave danger. And indeed it is, Father. And uh, for those of us who understand that danger better than others, I pray, Father, that uh, we would be able to somehow um, speak the words of truth that to influence others around us. We know, Father, that in, in, in many ways the entire nation rests upon the testimony of those that know you, of your people. And the nation has gone so far astray, Father, into godlessness and even many profess uh, atheism. Father, I, I, I pray that their their political views wouldn't interfere with uh, their, their uh, knowledge of, of you. For those that know you, Father, I pray that they would be able to discern what's happening in this nation and not be uh, carried away by the lies that they are hearing nearly everywhere. So, And I pray for those that speak to, uh, in the pulpits, who preach and teach, in whatever way that's done, Father, they also would stand for that which is right and good in government, so that every level of our government, Father, might be influenced by the word of truth. May those that stand for truth and uh, true justice be encouraged. May they be strengthened. May they be blessed in their outreach, Father. May they not see their work in government as just a way to uh, obtain money and power and other things in this world, but that they would uh, dare to stand for that which is truly right, uh, for truth, and for that which is best for our people and our nation. I pray for our president, Father, to give him great strength when so many have turned against him, I pray that the darkness wouldn't overcome him, that he wouldn't lose heart. I pray that he would gain strength day by day and that he would be careful and wise and pick 
battles where they should be picked and ignore the rest because truly it's a strategic battle that the enemy is waging. So I pray that you'd encourage him and all those that stand with him, Father. Father, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you would uh, bring blessing to us and understanding. In Christ's name, amen. Well, praise the Lord that we can be gathered this morning. Continue, of course. Uh, I keep saying we're getting close to the end of this series, which has gone on much longer than I intended. Uh, we started a little over two, two years and one and two weeks ago on um, the uh, Long War Against God series. And we're when I say we're close to the end, what I mean is when we finish up what uh, we're teaching here regarding the Apostle Paul, we will then be finished with this series. We've already considered the rest of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation uh, in the depth that I felt was appropriate. Clearly, this is very high level. Uh, we've looked very carefully at certain scriptures, haven't we? And uh, if you've been with us, you've seen God dealing with mankind through a number of different dispensational settings. Okay, that word is important. Dispensational is a very important word. And uh, we'll see that today as well. The last few of our fellowships have been focused in on what I've called the Pentecostal dispensation or the Holy Spirit dispensation. And uh, that begins uh, in the beginning of the book of Acts, but it doesn't continue to the end of the book of Acts. It only continues up to a certain point, and we'll see that today. And then that ends, and God starts a new program. So uh, that's uh, an important division in Scripture to take note of. Uh, we're learning how, as we read Scripture and take it literally uh, as much as we can, we're learning how to rightly divide the word of truth, as Paul writes in Second Timothy 2.15. If we do not rightly divide it, then we do not have truth anymore. We have the different programs mixed together uh, into a sort of lowest common denominator, which is not uh, what honors and glorifies the word that God has uh, delivered to his people. That word is very specific in many ways. It's carefully written. I mean, you should expect that it would be. After all, God is the author, right? <laughs> so um, God's not uh, speaking out of both sides of his mouth, as it were, but uh, very boldly and directly. And he speaks to the hearts, and that's what we've been seeing here as we looked at the early chapters of Acts. Um, okay, so... What I want to emphasize today is that uh, God is dealing in that early section of Acts, both personally with individuals and with the nation. That national emphasis is very, very important, as we have been seeing. God gives Peter great boldness, a man who didn't have boldness at all before, but the Holy Spirit gives Peter great boldness, and he speaks uh, boldly in that first sermon there on the day of Pentecost in that particular year. It's recorded in Acts chapter 2, but what we see Peter doing is exalting 
the Lord Jesus Christ and specifically focusing on his resurrection, his resurrection, uh, which, of course, would have been a problem for the ones hearing it, perhaps, because they were involved, as you'll well remember, in crucifying the Lord. So that the Lord has now been resurrected is a significant issue for them. They can only imagine how severe their punishment will be, right? God's holding them accountable. And that's made very clear in what Peter preaches at the beginning there in Acts chapter 2, also in his messages that follow, Acts chapter 3, 4, and 5, and so forth, right? When Peter preaches, he preaches similarly in each case, but he says, you uh, have turned this precious uh, Savior over to be crucified, right? He's not blaming the Romans there. He's blaming them. So Peter preaches boldly, and uh, just two verses out of chapter 2, well, three really, uh, verses 34, 5, and 6. He's just mentioned uh, the resurrection of Christ and uh, the giving out of the Holy Spirit, which has now manifested himself in the signs, wonders, and miracles, right? (laughs) Uh, Okay, so verse 34. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. So Peter is preaching under the power of the Holy Spirit. There's fear in the hearts of many who hear it, right? Verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. In other words, Christ is in heaven. He's going to return to put his enemies under his footstool. By the way, that verse there, the Lord said unto my Lord, verse 34, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. That's, in a certain sense, God's favorite verse in the whole Bible. You know how I know that? It's quoted 23 times in the New Testament. It's a quotation from Psalm 110, verse 1. The second most quoted verse is from Leviticus, Thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's only quoted seven times in the New Testament. This one is quoted 23 times, more than three times as often. So there's much significance to the fact that the Lord is in heaven and he's going to return. And when he does, he's going to judge the world. Okay, so that's uh, quite interesting to note. I was pretty surprised myself when I noticed this, uh, that it was that often quoted. Okay, now what it says is that they were pricked in their hearts and said, what shall we do? And he says to them, repent and be baptized every one of you, okay, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So the exhortation is both personal individual, right? It's only individuals who repent, but 
but there needs to be a repentance on a national scale is what uh, Peter was preaching there. And uh, if that repentance on the national scale does not occur, what will God's response be? Well, mercifully, Peter goes out and preaches again, not that long afterwards. This is recorded in chapter 3. And uh, again, he, it's pretty much the same message. He says, uh, heaven will receive Christ until it's time to restore all things. In other words, until the kingdom is established. He says, Moses said, a prophet shall the Lord raise up. Like me, him shall you hear in all things that he says to you. Well, that prophet was Christ, right? But they did not. They would not. They refused to hear what he said. The next verse says, Every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow afterwards, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Well, what days? The ones that they were in right then, right? So Peter is preaching again uh, the judgment of God that will fall fall upon uh, his enemies. So that's just quite incredible that Peter identifies those days. So those very days were the days where they must hear. Now, if they refuse to hear the word of the Lord, then what will be the consequence of that? Well, we see some of it developing in chapters 4 and 5. We looked at that uh, last time, right? With Ananias and Sapphira. They were false uh, believers. They had confessed to certain things. They were members of the assembly in Jerusalem. and But signs and wonders were being uh, worked out everywhere. So it's not too surprising that there would be unbelievers in the midst, right, who want to be part of this. In fact, in the book of Acts, there is other evidences that there were those that saw the miracles and wanted to be a part of it, right? They wanted even to be able to perform miracles, and they asked how, how they could learn to do this, right? As if he could go to school and learn how to do what Peter and, and the other uh, apostles were, were doing, right? Uh, Ananias and Sapphira were of that sort. It was required that they sell everything, put all the proceeds in the common pot, and live communally, right? Ananias and Sapphira sold their property, but they did not put it all in the common treasury. They kept back uh, some for themselves, right? They lied to the Holy Spirit, and they were immediately judged and taken out of the assembly. This is a, this is a foreshadowing of what will happen uh, later in the kingdom. In fact, if, if you read about the rule of God in the kingdom, you see that evil, open evil, is uh, removed uh, viciously, you might say. Uh, and uh, you can read about that in Zechariah's uh, great prophecy. Okay, so that's the background uh, of where we get today, where we've come today, is to what I will call Israel's final opportunity. God offers Israel now a final opportunity to hear his word. This is talking about Israel as a nation. Of course, there are individuals 
always who are being saved. But here we're looking at God's offer to the nation. And uh, Stephen is now right in the center of this. Stephen is raised up as a leader in the Jerusalem assembly. And uh, he um, preaches boldly. And the consequence of that is that many become believers. In Acts chapter 6, uh, verse 7, we read, The word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Again, signs, wonders, and miracles are accompanying the preaching. They are authenticating the preacher and the preaching uh, of the kingdom, the coming kingdom, right, as we've seen so uh, often here before in our studies. And I'll keep going. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the Libertines, and Cyrenians, this is verse 9 of Acts chapter 7, uh, 6 rather, and Alexandrians, and of them Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. So they, uh, Stephen's preaching boldly, working signs, wonders, and miracles. I mean, uh, that someone would then dare to conflict with Stephen it might be a bit surprising, right, that they would conflict with someone who so clearly was working with God's power displayed everywhere, right? And yet they are they are bold enough to do that, these leaders there uh, of Israel. It says in verse 10, They were not able, however, to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. It was the Holy Spirit that was working. So they couldn't resist the wisdom with which he spoke and the spirit by which he spoke. And as you go on reading here, you see that uh, they, they gather support from the community, from the leaders there. So that was just people in a certain synagogue, but they gather the support of the rulers of Israel. And uh, they they go out and they, they arrest uh Stephen, and they bring him before the council. This is the uh, Sanhedrin, right? You remember the part that the Sanhedrin played in setting up the false charges against the Lord himself, right? Sometime before there, right? And so they, they call him before the Sanhedrin, and false charges are made. And those are in verse 14, that Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place, meaning the temple, right, uh, and change the customs which Moses delivered. Hmm. And it says, and all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him, on Stephen, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. So Stephen's <laughs> is quite uh, remarkable as he sits there listening to these false charges. Now, I'd like, uh, Patty, if you'd read uh, the next uh, section here, which is in Chapter 7. And we're going to skip over most of this. You should definitely spend some time reading this, because I consider this to be one of the greatest 
speeches ever given by men, right? And it's recorded here in great length, and it gives the whole history of God's working with his people, right? From the beginning, you know, how God worked in this nation, right? Which he called his nation. Uh, he called it, uh, called them the apple of his eye, right? Uh, they were his people. And he had worked from the beginning, and Stephen reveals how God had worked each step of the way. And the whole point of this is that he shows how they had rejected the word of God in every critical situation, right? And God had brought judgment upon them accordingly. Okay, so, Patty, would you please read Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, and then verses 37 through 42. Then said the high priest, Are these things so? And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Sharon, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans, and dwelt in Sharon, and from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession, and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. And God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage, and entreat them evil four hundred years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. Okay, now verse 37 to 42. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren. Like unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him on the Mount Sinai, and with our fathers who received the lovely oracles to give to us, the lively oracles to give unto us, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them and in their hearts turned back again to Egypt, saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered sacrifice unto the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Okay, thank you, honey. Okay, so 
the reason why I had these verses read is that it, it sets the stage really for how God expects Israel to respond as a nation to the words that uh, are spoken to them by the men that God sends, right? So he sent prophets and, uh, and he sent Moses finally. And it says God turned in verse 42 and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, right? So eventually, after much mercy being extended, God would bring judgment upon this nation because of their refusal to hold him high, to honor and worship him, and to hear his word and respond to it. So eventually, after much mercy, and when I say much, I mean hundreds of years, right? Uh, finally, God gives them over to their evil desires. Right? In this case, it was idolatry. And you remember uh, Moses coming down off the mount with the Ten Commandments at this point, right? And here's the whole nation. Even Aaron, Moses' brother, is leading them in uh, worshiping the false, uh, you know, the golden calf, which they have built there. Okay, so God will eventually bring judgment on his people. Well, as we continue on in chapter 7, Stephen's great, great uh, sermon there, you see how it develops. Uh, the next part here, which I won't read to you, is all about how the people worship the Lord without a temple, right? Uh, but but uh, finally, it says, Solomon built him a house. <laughs> now, you might think that was a great thing. To build the temple, right? Well, God gave them over to that, and the Lord God was quite happy when when there was simply an ark, right? Simply an ark, a tabernacle, as it were, right? A tent, right? Um, and then finally, um, a house was built. <laughs> it says, "Build him a house, a house for God." Well, so so what Stephen says now, and these are the in, in verses forty-eight, forty-nine, and fifty. He says. Nevertheless, the Most High dwells not in temples made with hands. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has not my hand made all these things? You can't box God in. You can't build him a house and expect he's going to dwell there, right? Uh, that's simply not a possibility, right? So <clears throat> what Stephen does is focus on the larger picture here. Remember, the charges that have been brought against him are about how he wants to destroy the temple, destroy the traditions associated with the temple, and by implication, destroy those that minister and serve in this religious system, most of which has been invented by them, <laughs> okay? Uh, and what what uh, Stephen says is that, oh, the Lord God is far, far beyond this. You know, he could destroy all of this and still uh, do very well with his own people, right? In fact, the Lord God is going to do exactly that. Okay, that's exactly what he is going to do. Well, uh, the rulers of Israel see clearly what Stephen is saying, and they respond very negatively. They could not see the forest for the trees. Their issue was a building, its customs, 
and their place in that religious system. They were not concerned about how God's redemptive plan for his people would finally be worked out, that God would send forth the seed of the woman, Israel's Messiah, whom they had now had crucified, right? And who now had been gloriously raised from the dead and was waiting to return, right? This was not in the minds or hearts of Israel's leaders. And that sets up the next phase here in the development during this uh, Pentecostal dispensation that's about to come to an end, as you shall see. The next uh, piece of this is that they're going to have Stephen stoned to death. They're going to bring Stephen into martyrdom. And uh, Linda, would you please read that for us there? Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 54. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, do ye always resist the Holy Ghost? As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And have they and have they slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have now the betrayers and murderers, who have received by the law, by the disposition of angels, and have not kept it? When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on the hymn with their teeth. Thank you, Linda. Roy, please continue and just read uh, to the end of the chapter, Acts chapter 7, verses 55 through 60, and then the first verse in chapter 8. Roy? But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing on, on, on the right side of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and ran upon him with one cord, and cast him out of the city, and stoned him, and the witnesses lay down the clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, believe not this sin to our, their church, but and when he had said this, he fell asleep. And now verse 1 in chapter 8, Roy. And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there, were, there was a great persecution against the church, which was taken at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Okay, thank you, Roy. Okay, so there you see it. Um, the nation has now rejected the word of the living God as preached here by Stephen. Now, I don't even think Stephen knew 
and that this was the last opportunity the nation would have at that time. Okay, um, He preaches boldly, but God doesn't tell his servants uh, what's coming in the future usually, right? And so uh, everything uh, was set. There was so much anticipation from God's point of view here. Uh, the rulers of Israel just saw this as just one more uh one more time where they would somehow uh, work to preserve their power and their glory, right, as it were, their position with the Romans, and uh, nothing more than that. And they were willing to destroy God's messenger if that's what it took. And they saw him as having great power with the people, so they uh, had him put to death. Well, so at every turn here, after the Holy Spirit's been given at, on the day of Pentecost, at every turn, at every message, there are some who are saved, sometimes many, right? But the nation and its leaders does not submit to the word of the living God, right? And now, as we see it develop in the next chapters, the final chapter has been written, and that was in Stephen's martyrdom. Everything is going to change now. Notice Saul is now introduced. He's a young man, right? Uh, the, the clothing of Stephen is laid at his feet. This was a tradition. Those, the one that brought the official message of condemnation, right? Uh, that man would then hold the clothing of the one who is being uh, stoned. And that man is this young man named Saul. He has not appeared prior to this in this uh, revealed history in the book of Acts. But now he will be in the very center from here on till the end, right? Why? Because God is setting aside Israel and raising up a new apostle, the man Saul, right? Um, and let's just uh, quickly see here how that goes. Uh, I will read for you in Acts chapter 9. We're going to skip chapter 8, but in Acts chapter 9, we read these words. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. So Saul now is a very important person. He's young, but as it turns out, he had studied under Gamaliel. You remember Gamaliel was the one who said, well, we better be careful what we do here because if, if God is the one bringing forth the signs, wonders, and miracles, if we oppose him, we'll be opposing God, right? And that'll bring judgment upon us. Well, he was that man, very man. Saul had been trained up under him. He was his best student, it seemed. And so... He was already, even though he was young, uh, a man with great authority uh, with the leaders, the rulers of Israel, right? Um, and so Saul here has dedicated himself to destroying the, the believers wherever he could find them, right? So it says here, he went to the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogue. So he's going to go all the way out to Damascus, he's going to go into the synagogues, and he's going to arrest 
the believers he finds there, right? He's going to bring them to Jerusalem for them to be tried and probably executed, right? Uh, that's uh, the level of hatred that he has <clears throat> for uh, this message that Peter and now Stephen has preached, right? Of course, that message is that God is going to judge those that have not received his word, right? And uh, that includes here the leaders of the nation, surely. Well, he's on his way to Damascus, and it says in verse 3, Suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth, and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the prick. So the Lord is pricking at Saul's heart here. And trembling and astonishing, he said, Lord, what, what wilt thou have me to do? <clears throat> and the Lord said, Arise and go into the city. <clears throat> And it shall be told thee what thou must do. <clears throat> and so he arose from the earth, and his eyes are open because he's he's been blinded, doesn't see anyone. Uh, it says he was three days without sight, um, <clears throat> and uh, he's taken off to a <clears throat> a man who's been uh, singled out by the Lord, a man named also named. Ananias. So remember, there was an Ananias who was judged. He was not a believer. Here's an Ananias who is a believer, and Paul is entrusted to his care. Okay, um, verse 15 is important. Uh, just I want to read these two before we stop today. The Lord said unto him, Go thy way. He's, this is the Lord speaking directly now to Ananias, because Ananias says, well, this man is dangerous. We don't want to have anything to do with him. How can you have, Lord, how can you have selected him now to be part of our group, right? And uh, so the Lord says to Ananias directly, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And uh, things continue a little further here. I won't read the verses, but uh, it says in verse 22, Paul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews, which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And previously it says he preached that Jesus was the Son of God. So Saul the great enemy of the faith, the great enemy of God. In fact, Paul calls himself later in his letters the chief of sinners, right, for that reason, that he persecuted the believers to the death, right? And Stephen being uh, right at the top of the list, he calls himself the chief of sinners, and, and yet it was by God's grace that he was able to save a sinner like Paul and totally transform him. This act of saving Saul 
goes down in history. Perhaps it's the it's in some ways the most glorious example of, of how a person, how a sinner, can be saved under the under grace. Right? This man had nothing to commend him <laughs> uh, except his ignorance. You might say. I mean, everything he was doing was in ignorance. He did not truly understand God or his ways or his work, right? Um, but until this point, the message had gone out through the Twelve to Israel only. Now, and to the Jews, wherever they might be found. But now, uh, Saul is raised up. His name will be changed to Paul, and he will go to the Gentiles ultimately. He'll start out going to the synagogues, and we'll consider that uh, next week or in the following, uh, and then eventually to the Gentiles. Well, what we've been seeing through all of this is that God uh, has a plan. In this case, it was a plan for his people, the nation of Israel. Remember, the Old Testament prophets had said God was going to establish the kingdom someday, and the nation, the nation of Israel, would become a nation of priests, right? And they would bring the message of salvation to the world, right? So the nation must submit to the truth of God. And if it will not, even though many thousands of individual believers uh, are there, the nation is still a part of the focus here in this whole Pentecostal dispensation, right? And so when the nation refuses the message, finally, after much mercy, God uh, draws a close on that special period, right? So throughout that section, Acts chapter 2 through Acts chapter 8, you see uh, much of a focus on Jerusalem, on the Jews, on the law, and so forth, right? They're still worshiping in the temple. This will all change one step at a time as now Paul is raised up as the apostle of the Gentiles. Well, I hope you understand. I'm sure, sure you are grasping, and we all need uh, to be reminded often by the Lord that it is grace now that's operative, right? God's great work today is largely invisible to people. Uh, they might very well ask you, well, what is God doing today? Right? Does he even show him his hand? And the answer would be absolutely, but they may not comprehend what you're saying because God's greatest work today is in the hearts by grace. Right? That's what changes one's life. It is not a religious system. It is not a work of law and uh, a system designed to support that. That is not what God is doing today under grace. He's working in the hearts of believers, and he is transforming them by the power of his grace. What a blessing it is to leave behind the law completely, therefore. Law and grace do not go together. Paul makes that very clear, and we spent much time here. Uh, speaking of that in the past, right? But to cast yourself entirely upon the grace of God for salvation, not trusting your own works at all, that is what God desires of us. 
That's what exalts the completed work of Christ so completely. We could say it's God's riches at Christ's expense. Yes, a good definition, right? Uh, not a bad one at all. And we are so rich through him. So praise the Lord uh, for his grace today. Any comments or questions uh, from any of you before we uh, go to prayer today? Father God, thank you for gathering us today and uh, for this word which has been opened to us. Father, I pray that we would, uh, quite literally, as we study your word, sort of hang on the various words, the expressions, exactly as it's written, so we might not miss that which is critical to our understanding. I pray that the Holy Spirit would enable us to do that and to understand and to bring great blessing to us. Because, Father, it is it is your grace that's most wonderful. And may we properly grasp on to that in these days. Many are preaching legal systems, Father, religious systems for salvation. But, uh, but we know, Father, uh, your truth. We have believed this precious word of truth. And we've taken it to heart, and we have therefore been uh, joined together with our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have a heavenly position in him, and that the affairs of this world are passing away. And uh, we're grieved to see, Father, what's happening in our nation, and certainly uh, it pains us in our hearts uh, every time we consider it. But, Father, uh, we know that you're working and you're accomplishing uh, an even greater plan and even one that is eternal. So, Father, thank you for each one that's gathered in uh, here this morning. And uh, we would thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.